What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to the Abundant Journey podcast. Super glad you would join it today. As always, I'm your host, Nick James, and I got a special episode lined up for you today. I'm really excited to introduce our guest. It's Ryan Layton. He is a real estate guy. He is a commercial real estate broker. He's focused on the self-storage industry for years and years. Family man. He is a traveler, and he's just a great guy. Uh, One of the cool things about Ryan is that as I was building some relationships with folks in the industry and learning from some really successful self-storage people, Ryan's name had come up on more than one occasion about somebody I needed to get to know. And so I reached out and we've begun to form a relationship. So super excited to have him on today with his wisdom and also to hear his story and his journey. Ryan, I don't want to steal too much thunder. Thanks for being on. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Nick. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, again, I've alluded to it and I I shared a little bit of your story, but we're going to jump backwards here in a minute and talk a little bit more about your past. But tell us kind of what you're doing today, day in and day out. What's a day in the life for you look like? So part of my time is most of my time is spent in the real estate side. So uh, brokering, self-storage specifically, I've fallen into that niche. Uh, so assisting buyers with finding assets, uh, mainly in the Northwest, I would say Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, focus on those markets. And then secondly, um, assisting sellers. We've, um, this year we've obtained probably more listings than we have in the previous couple of years is, uh, more and more people are wanting to go to market to see if they can, you know, get their price still. Um, so it's, that's been busy. And then additionally, um, I own and operate a self-storage company. Uh, We just completed uh, our construction of our sixth facility here in the Spokane market, um, acquiring number seven, and then potentially starting to do construction on number eight. So that is in itself a big task as well. Yeah. So, and I I love that about your story is that you're, you know, a lot of brokers, one of the first things that folks say, whether it's on the residential side, the single family side, or the larger commercial spaces, find guys who do it and who have done it well because they understand the game of investing and they've been willing to put their money in and they've been willing to learn the lessons. And so you kind of live in this two world where you've been an investor and you are an investor. But in addition to that, you also are a broker, and so you're able to to understand all different sides of this. Now, I didn't realize that you you are in the construction side too. So, one of the things you mentioned as you started sharing there was that there's more listings this year. That seems to go against what a lot of people say is, "Hey, there's nothing on the market." So, but you're actually finding that there's more listings, and, and sellers are more interested in trying to trying to get rid of properties. Yeah, and that's partly just because the way we do our business. I mean, we are constantly tilling for for new customers, reaching out, talking to new customers. Um, I am, uh, as a member of the Washington State Self Storage Association board, um, I'm reaching out to uh, owners and operators on a reg- on the regular basis to discuss um, what the board offers and what we can do to assist owners. And that conversation leads into what challenges are you facing. Uh, where can we help you with the landlord tenant law, the lien process, et cetera. And then that dialogue creates a rapport and a friendship that, you know, when they're, when they call, they're typically like, well, you know, Hey, I saw, I saw you sold so-and-so's facility, you know, what's mine worth. Uh, Mm. and so that question's come up. I think there's been prior to 2018, there was a lot of folks that were in the self-storage industry that were in their mid to late sixties. And now we're approaching 70s and are looking at what's my pivot. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been running this myself. This has been a full time job for me and my wife for myself individually. Maybe I'm ready to sell and just, you know, go off in the sunset and take my money and run. So that's just formulation of relationships that have occurred over the last decade. Uh, and so it's just kind of all coming to fruition at one time, ironically. Um, so I've, I mean, I've helped four different sellers this, this year that were all on the brink of retirement 
you know, wow. sell their facilities. In each case, they've all been seller financing. So they continue their cash flow, but they're getting a chunk of change at closing. That's awesome. No, I love that. And, you know, I want to spend some time toward the end of the episode here, really diving into what you're seeing from sellers, buyers, and you've shared a little bit of it so far. But I, I want to go back here to your story because, again, you've you've been in this space over 15 years. How long have you been in the in the investor space? Uh, 2003. So 20 okay. years. Yeah, 20 years, which is awesome. So take us back to the early formative years as far as you want to go. I mean, was there entrepreneur blood in childhood? Were your folks entrepreneurs? Were they investors? Or did that start later in life for you? No, I was raised in an uh, entrepreneurial family. Um, my family is both uh, my mother and father divorced when I was young, but they both went their separate ways and both um, had to basically build their uh, wealth through themselves. Uh, they've never done a nine to five job. Uh, you know, there was certainly struggles. There was certainly challenges. You know, as a kid, you don't notice those as much. Um, but, you know, always looking for ways to be creative. And my father traveled around the country doing housing developments with different uh, construction companies, you know, being um, the agent, in essence, the, the listing agent for the development, and then um, came back to Spokane, found his roots here. And in 2001, did a sell, um, actually in 1996, did a manufactured home park, which I spent two summers pouring concrete, digging ditches, using the excavator, <laughs> uh, putting sprinkler systems in, painting. I mean, anything you can imagine, I, I learned it and did it which was great. Uh, at sure. the time, I didn't think it was so great. Um, so that was kind of instilled in me at a younger age. And then, um, yeah, on my mother's side, her and her uh, husband created a, a pneumatic air tool company from the ground up. I mean, literally from the creation of the concept all the way through the production of the product uh, to the masses in the world. So um, yeah, it's been in me for a long time. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, so with, with both of them, that being their focus and you seeing that modeled, was that a, for you, was that something that really um, pushed you into that? I mean, was there this, this vibe of, hey, we don't do nine to five or were they, hey, whatever you want to do? I, I mean, or when did you know like th that was going to be your, your similar path? So, I mean, I, obviously out of, out of college and career, you know, going out and looking for jobs, I took a, a sales job with a company selling point of sale systems out of a company based out of Oakland. So I had a territory up here, I had a base salary and a, you know, commission on top of that. It was, you know, travel around to every small town in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho selling software systems. Um, I then took another, you know, left that and went to work for a company out of London that was again a sales job. So I've always been involved in sales in one aspect or another. Um, never had that, you know, clock in, clock out type of situation. So that's so foreign to me. Um, <laughs> but what I recognized was, you know, the more effort you put in, the more um, relationship building you do. Sales is all about relationships. A lot of folks, you know, it's kind of turn and burn. Let's get a deal done. And then, you know, that's it. I'm never going to talk to you again. Mine's always been, let's create a rapport, you know, talk, and I know it's not going to happen now. No pressure. You know, we, it'll happen when it happens. And it's been a successful formula for me, at least. Um, so that has then led into, uh, you know, in the dot-com era, let's just say. I was living in Seattle. Um, the company I was working out of London, they basically sold. And it was, you know, it was either leave Seattle or... or um, you know, go find a new job. I thought that was a great opportunity to pivot. Mm. I've always had a, a hankering for real estate. It was kind of in my family. So my wife and yeah. I and our one son moved over to Spokane. And I had a mentor that was in my life that was had no, no real estate background, just kind of an entrepreneurial mentor. We met for coffee and chatted and we were just kind of having a rapport. We worked in the same building. Uh, became friends. And one thing he left me with that I'll never forget. He's like, find a niche in what you do and excel at it. Um, it'll set you apart from everybody else out there. There'll be people that'll do the same thing you do, but find a way to make yourself different. And so for real estate, there's all different paths, right? There's residential, yep. there's commercial, there's leasing, but within those specific generalities, there's 
certain sectors. I mean, you can go sell, I just want to sell high-end homes. That's all I want to sell and be known as the high-end home sale. Um, and, you know, you can just go sell office space. I chose a path in self-storage. Um, and partly I had some affinity to it from my father owning one. And then also uh, some folks that I knew were, were coming out of that sector looking for land. And so they're like, hey, go find us land to build self-storage. So it became kind of this destiny for me to go do it. Um, and it worked out very well. Haven't looked back, have you? <laughs> no, no. No, that's great. Well, and I, you know, a lot of, it's interesting, you know, as I think through the different guests that we've had, two things that uh, we constantly hear is build relationships and you have to learn to sell. And both of those were things that were instilled in you pretty early and, and from a young age. What are some other skills or some things that you learned between mom and dad, you know, in terms of dad obviously was around the real estate space. He was successful in it. He owned storage. That makes sense why that path was clear. But knowing that mom was on that entrepreneur path as well, were there other things that you picked up and learned from them that's kind of helped you along your journey? Yeah. I mean, one was learn to live within your means. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of folks out there that, um, especially in Seattle when I was in the dot-com era, I mean, you had people becoming instant millionaires. I mean, overnight mm -hmm. based upon some phantom stock price or, uh, options. And then, you know, they're out there buying the brand new car, the brand new boat, the brand new everything. And, you know, it's kind of a look at me type of mentality. And, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's all gone and there's no contingency plan. Um, I always recognize from a, as a younger kid and even, even now, it's like always have a contingency plan to protect yourself from creating stress. Sales in stress just lead to negativity. It leads to deception. It leads oh, yeah. to, I mean, I've seen people do, you know, forgery of signatures and all kinds of things in this industry or not this industry, but overall, uh, just to kind of you know, get a deal done, right? Force their client into a bad decision. Um, so yeah, learn to live within your means. That's been something that I've definitely that. Uh, preached to a lot of folks. And then also, um, you know, I befriend a lot of my clients. I mean, treat them as if they're, you know, friends and colleagues on, on, on equal. I'm not any better than them. They're not any better than me. We, we talk, uh, I have clients that are, you know, worth, multi multi-million dollars and I can have a rapport I can call them on things and say that's hey that's not gonna work tell them not to make a good uh, bad decision um, that honesty that uh, accountability that you can create with them is a checks and balance a lot of them don't have that in their lives um, they either make all their own decisions and no one's gonna tell me what to do and to have somebody that has their best interests at heart that tells them this isn't a good decision to make um, Sometimes it leads to a longer term relationship because they like recognize that you're not just in this for a quick sale. You're actually in this for the greater betterment of my myself as a client and a friend. I love that. And I think that's such that gets overlooked so much. I find that I get to have I instead of saying have to have I get to have similar conversations as a banker. And what I, what I learned in going from small business banking to commercial banking is as these companies grow, they view you as a part of their team and they need that. And so, you know, there can be some of those tense moments like you're talking about. But at the end of the day, when you've built that rapport, you've built that trust, then you're able to speak and you're able to, to, to call them on things. And, and again, not, not, it's in a loving way. I mean, it's in a yeah. way that says, hey, I'm looking out for you here. And those, those are so needed. And what are, um, maybe what are some, uh, I, I don't know the question here, just in thinking along that thought process, what are some ways that, you know, you see some of these younger brokers, you were kind of alluding to it earlier before the call or before the, the podcast, what are some, some ways that you see some of these younger brokers just try to do whatever and kind of a order taker, um, what are some maybe ways that they could grow in that? Well, yeah, I mean, so it, it depends on, you know, if you're working for a large firm, um, there's, you know, there's overhead, there's cost of operations that, you know, filters down to that um, individual broker. 
it's expensive. And so the pressure's on from day one. The expectation is you're going to be out there dialing for dollars, as they call it, or, you know, reaching out for leads. They're making connections. I mean, I hear from my clients, hey, I got a call from so-and-so brokerage, um, you know, but it's all surface level. There's no deeper relationships created. It's all, you know, how can I, how can I get a listing, not how can I help serve you? So that's been, you know, probably a way that we provide, I provide, my team provides a differentiate is I'm not looking for the listing. I'm looking for a way to provide a benefit to you. And if, if you're to choose to sell at some point, you know, if you want to, I, I would hope you would consider me, but it's not, that's not my original point of my call. It's, it's a check-in. What's going on? Can I provide any information? Have you heard about this happening? Let's talk about, you know, taxation. What's your estate plan look like? What are you doing for this? Um, how's your manager? Um, I've got a referral for you for a vendor for a better price on your insurance quote, or, um, you know, you need a, a gate vendor. So those are all things that we do differently. I don't feel like those brokerages, a lot, and a lot of those don't have any um, real world association to that stuff. They've never owned and operated anything in their life. They've just worked as a salesman. And so without that levity, they don't have the ability to, to provide any insight. Um, I can tell you from experience, there's certain vendors that, you know, I just won't work with anymore. Um, it's just given my experience with them, the customer service wasn't bad, so on and so forth. So sometimes I may share those stories with the clients like, oh, we're having the same thing. So now you've created a connection point. Um, and then, you know, here's how we pivoted. We, we chose to go with this vendor and, you know, call this person. Here's their number. Here's their email. Mention my name. They'll take care of you. And now you've created this circular relationship within the industry. Self-storage, at the end of the day, you know, 70, 80% of the owners are, are small operators. And yeah. so it's not the big reach that you're, you're dealing with because you know, they're the behemoths, but the smaller operators, I mean, they're, they're real people like you or I, I mean, they, they do their things and they, you know, the storage business is part of their life. And so to ask them to sell part of their life is not a good approach to start with. It's to figure out how to make their life easier and better. And if they choose to sell, then that's the opportunity. I love that, and I think that's overstated quite a, quite often. And, and one of the owners that you and I both know, he, he had told me, "Hey, I'm getting three to five calls a day from brokers or buyers every single day. You want to sell? You want to sell? You want to sell?" And I think you're right. Like you have when when that is the norm, how can you differentiate yourself? How can you um, really set yourself apart? either to broker a deal or to potentially be the buyer. And I think you hit it right on the head. It's by building a relationship. It's by understanding who is playing the game and who are some of the experts and, you know, positioning yourself as the advisor. So I think that's super good. Going back a little bit to your walk us through your first storage facility that you purchased and tell us a little bit about that part of your journey. Okay. So, uh, 2004, there was a facility that was, uh, let's just say, newer, newer built, but not operating very well. Uh, is out in the eastern part of Spokane, a town called Liberty Lake. Um, was just, you know, kind of doing a drive-by and stopped in to kind of see what the guy was up to. Hey, what are you building? How's it going? And we got to chatting, talking about uh, just, you know, construction, unit sizes, you know, just stuff. Um he says, you know, I'm, I, he literally outright told me, he's like, I'm just building this with the intent to sell it. I, uh, I don't wow. know what I'm doing, but um, I've heard these things are well. And so <laughs> I said, okay, you know, there, you know, it was one of those, like, well, I left the conversation with, oh, that's interesting. Didn't even think about myself entertaining an option to purchase. It was just more of a, okay, interesting. So a couple months passed by, I stopped back in, talked with him, and he's like, you know, you why don't, why don't you buy one of these things? I'm like, wow, well, I don't know if that's in the cards. Um, so I approached my father and I said, hey, what do you what do you think about helping me? You know, get into this. Is there a way to you know we could figure this out? So uh, I had some equity built up from 401k. I had some other things that I'd done, and we basically kind of lopped into the deal uh, with the last nickels we had in certain case. You know, outside of day to day living, and kind of threw it out there and, and made a deal happen. Um, yeah. That was, that turned out to be great. 
Wow. Now, the next purchase uh, was not too far away. It was just down the road. It was a young couple that had uh, built a facility and were going through a divorce. Hmm. Reached out to the previous owner of the one I bought and said, hey, we're interested in selling. He's like, well, I just sold. Maybe you want to call this guy I just sold to to buy the facility. And it was a bigger sale purchase price. It was a, uh, more of a stretch. We made it happen. Uh, financing in the 2005, 2006 era was still pretty flush. You could go get deals if you had a heartbeat. Um, so able to put together uh, a big deal there, but just didn't know the math on self-storage enough. I mean, I just didn't understand how these things penciled, didn't understand operational costs. I was very juvenile in this process and uh, kind of bought blindly. And so that lesson I've been able to take and provide guidance to others. Um, that facility really didn't provide much cash flow for, I mean, it's service debt is all it did for nearly a decade. Um, there was very little in terms wow. of take home from that project. Um, and so, you know, we were pigeonholed into the unit mix, Liberty Lake then put a moratorium on self-storage, which allowed us to garner um, the lion's share of the opportunity in the market, but we also couldn't expand. We couldn't change our mix. So we were stuck with what we had. Um, so learning through that process, uh, getting through the 08, and I'll probably coming out on the back door of that probably by 2013, started to start to see the, the climb and um, our management team. You know, honestly, it was a mom and pop operation. We were hiring folks that were living on the living at the storage facility, which I vehemently do not recommend in any case at all. Mm. Um, but at the time that we didn't know any better. Um, so, and then from there, it just, it, it, the next opportunity came in 2018. Um, and then we built one in 2019. Uh, and then recently it's been uh, construction along with acquisition. I think for the immediate future, um, given the market conditions, I think coming down the pipe, I think acquisition may be more prominent than construction just because you can create instant cash flow and you've got something to work with. Yeah, no, I, I, thanks for sharing that and thanks for sharing some of the lessons learned. I, I think, you know, there seems to be this tension when you're jumping into investments where one, you need to learn and you need to educate yourself on what you're doing because it can save you some of the headache. But there's also there there's the crowd that says, hey, like you got to get off the sidelines and you got to get in the game. And half of these lessons, I think even you were just talking about learning, you wouldn't have learned had you not gone for it. And, mm -hmm. you, you know, had you have not jumped in, what are some other things, you know, you've been around buyers and sellers for a long time. What are some other fears that you see from from buyers that keep them on the sideline? Um, well, I think part of it is the uh, expectation for returns, right? And how to create those returns. So everyone, the biggest, you know, multiple or number of people look at is a cap rate, right? They get fixated on a cap rate. Well, a cap rate is a, is a snapshot in time. It's a, it's right now, this is what this property produces. <clears throat> and so it's assuming you do nothing different than what the current operator is doing. Well, if you're going to buy a property and assume you're going to do nothing different, then go buy a triple net lease for 40 years and sit on it. That's the best investment for you. Sure. Now, if if you're if you're going to take that cap rate and you got to look, what can I do with this property? Where's where can I take it to? Can I raise rents? Can I expand it? Can I change the operational costs? Can I change the the look and feel of the property so it attracts a better customer? Etc. 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 Down the road, those are, and then you have to look. Where, what can you do with it? You know, so that that was those ideas of a performa are important. You just have to set expectations correctly. You can't take a property at a five cap and expect it to be a nine cap in one year. I mean, that's just yeah. crazy. But you can over time and see that in that that realistic um, gain on occupancy, that realistic gain on on income. So. That's probably the biggest thing I tell people is I have people that sit around and, you know, literally today come back to me from 19 or 20 and why didn't I buy that? I'm like, yeah, I couldn't convince you enough that that, made, that was a good business decision to do yeah. and, and, they're, and they're kicking themselves. So now 
did they force themselves to go just go buy something to say they bought something? No, you got to still keep the same metrics, but getting off the sidelines, it's tough for a lot of folks because they'll kick tires on 20, 30 deals and 20 or 30 deals that they could have had opportunity to purchase and there's none of them happen. And then they go and buy something that's not even in the same space. I mean, I've had people who have like, we've got to buy self-storage and they turn around and went, oh, we just bought an office building in um, downtown Albuquerque. Like, what? <laughs> that wasn't even on the radar. And then they tell me all the bad things about it. And you're like, well, then why would all the good things that you were looking for, you just went against everything you said. So um, that's part of, you know, that's the frustration part in real estate yeah. is, you know, buyers told you what they want, but they, they do the opposite. Mm. Um, so it's funny you say that too. I spent a little bit of time at an investment firm and uh, they stocks, bonds, you know, all the retirement accounts. And interestingly enough, that was a very similar conversation. They had they had gotten burned in 08 and 09, and then for 10 years they had been on the sidelines and they had missed some like 200% increase and they would have made all their money back, but they had just been sitting on the sidelines and, and inevitably they were going to jump back in right before it crashed again. So that that's just happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, does. it does. You've got to be able to stay a certain pit of liquid liquidity that's important if you're not liquid to strike when the deals arise um then you know you're if you're trying to put a deal together and you just don't have the funds to do it and you miss an opportunity it's can be super frustrating yeah yeah absolutely one of the things you talked a little bit about earlier was that you want to be sure that you have a contingency plan to protect yourself now, not being most folks say, "Hey, the contingency plan is the nine to five. It's the guaranteed salary. It's the it's the steady income." But you've never operated from that perspective. So maybe putting you on the spot a little bit, what what does a contingency plan look like for you? I mean, has it always been, "I'm going to trust in in my work ethic. I'm I know that I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the job done." Or well, how do you? Really, maybe the question is, how do you approach risk? Because I, I would think a lot of folks either wanting to jump into the game, you know, they're looking at that, maybe saying it's too risky. So how do you approach that? Well, I guess you have to gauge what your risk tolerance is. I mean, certain people out there just are, um, you know, gamblers, right? They just are risk averse. They'll throw caution to the wind. And, you know, sometimes you hit out of the park. And the next time you just, you know, fall flat on your face. And the ones that are the biggest risk takers also garner uh, the biggest, you know, they sell the books, they sell the, the, the stories, right? Because it's like no one else was willing to take the risk and this person was. Now, they also don't talk about all the failures that occur with that. So you have to garner the two and, and realize that when you go into a deal that there are risks in every deal. You know, it, it may not be something you can inherently see up front. It could be, it could be a natural disaster that causes uh, risk. It could be a fire. It could be a hurricane. It could be a tornado. Uh, it could be um, uh, something that's out of your control. Maybe the local uh, employer that is gar giving you your um, rental basis goes out of business, and now you have no job basis for, you know, whether it's you own an apartment complex or anything else. And all of a sudden the town just packs up and leaves. Uh, look at Seattle, for example, downtown Seattle. No one saw that coming. Now yeah. all of a sudden you have high rise buildings that are sitting empty because, you know, this, the community won't get behind the, the problem and fix it. So then all of a sudden you've got owners that are stuck with beautiful buildings that are empty. Yeah. Uh, those are unforeseen risks that you can't you can't see and you can't predict for. Some of the other things you can predict for, you know, you try to create a plan in place. You know, the what if scenarios. I try to build reserves into all of my my plans now for clients. I'm like, you know, they're like, why do we have to have this reserve account? I'm like, well, what happens if? Yeah. Um, and so, if you kind of plan for some problem it does help to offset it now there are some cases where things never happen and then great you're just you're just garnering more income from it but if you're not playing for it you're a fool yeah no i think you're absolutely right and of course coming from a banking background we love to try to find ways to mitigate risk but you just can't mitigate all kinds of risk uh, but I, I think you know 
you've talked mentors. You've also talked about educating yourself on the deal and actually what you're doing in the industry, having the right people around you you trust and build relationships with. Those are all, I think, part of the ingredients to making sure you're going to be successful. Not perfect, not flawless. You're still going to make mistakes, but but still moving forward. And I think those those ring true no matter what industry you're in. Well, let's shift a little bit here from your story and, you know, you've sprinkled in some of the more practical things on the brokerage side, but I'd love to pick your brain with, uh, for, for our listeners and folks who would be interested in getting into the game, maybe some, you know, you said your first deal, you weren't, uh, storage wasn't on your radar for even buying. So as podcasts have gone out, as books have been written, clearly storage is becoming more of the darling of the real estate industry. What are some reasons as to why it's gained such popularity? Oh uh, yeah, so I think you know COVID certainly helped, and what it did is it enlightened folks on what can happen in certain sectors. So. Um, you had office, right? Offices went empty. People learned how to, people were forced to pivot. They had to do Zoom calls. They could work from home. Businesses, companies provided their employees with options to uh, a work environment. Um, now that's, it's trying to come back, but will it ever be the same again? I doubt it. I think businesses to attract employees and if that expectation's already been set, that you can work from home certain days a week and you don't have to come in the office, the need for office spaces has dwindled. Yeah. Retail has had to shift and change its word because you either have the big players like the Amazons, the Walmarts, the Targets, they've been able to garner a lot of that retail business. So boutique retail is, is tough. Um, retail space can be expensive. So those are risky investments, riskier investments. Yeah. Um, now, multifamily. And in our state, Washington, I mean, there was a period of time when you couldn't collect rent from tenants that chose not to pay rent to you. And there was really no recourse. The state basically sided on the, on the side of the tenant. Um, well, once again, an unforeseen risk that no one could have saw coming down the pipe that that would ever happen, that the state of Washington would just tell you as a landlord, you can't collect rent on your tenant. They have an option to pay you or not. Um, so... Storage does not typically have any toilets or, te or te uh, toilets. So you don't have to worry about a lot of fixes. Your expenses are relatively low comparison to other asset classes. Um, the, uh, if you choose to uh, beautify your facility, you're garnering uh, tenants. You can choose what type of tenants you want to go with. Your uh, leases are on month to month cases most time. So that allows for you to pivot with your rental rate much faster than if you're on a longer term rate. Um, the one thing I'll say about storage that uh, a lot of folks, you know, it's, it's supply and demand, right? So there's becoming a lot of supply in certain areas. And that's concerning because uh, you don't have any, in some cases you don't have any barriers to entry. Um, and with no barriers to entry, you can have a lot of folks come into the space that may or may not know what they're doing and can ruin it mm. for the folks that are trying to run a professional operation because the customers are maybe more price sensitive only and they're just looking at price versus value. Uh, sure. So I guess the question, probably the, the number one thing is people say, why self-storage? Yeah. Um, number one is you can raise rents and you can change your cash flow immediately within one month. Wow. Uh, number two, your eviction process is very smooth and seamless. Uh, number three, uh, acquisition cost per foot is lower than any other asset class. Um, and you can obviously take that acquisition cost and increase its value by raising rents. Um, and number four, it's low cost of operations. Yeah. Uh, you can run a storage facility in cases, in some cases, one individual. In some cases, you can have no individuals. It's just be, you know, completely unmanned. Uh, so those four factors are probably the biggest reasons self-storage is attractive. Um, I don't physically have to live there or be there every day to make it work. 
um, and it's still a success. Now it is a business. That's the one thing I tell, tell people. It is a business. It's an active business. It's not a passive investment like a triple net lease where you just checks yeah. roll in, you do nothing. You do have to stay on top of it because if you don't, this it can be a runaway freight train into the bad side. Yeah. No, I think that's so good, and I all of those are things that I've I've heard similar. You know, in why it's becoming. Well, it was the best kept secret, but definitely getting on more and more people's radar. Maybe flipping the question on the other side, when you have all of these new potential buyers who are inexperienced and they're they're reaching out and saying, hey, this is what I want to do. What are some misconceptions about the industry that you hear? You just mentioned the business piece, right? Like a lot of folks think it's just some really passive thing where you just get to sit back. That's not the case. What are some other misconceptions you hear? So I would say in this industry, probably the, uh, yeah, number one is the business. Number two is that uh, you have to stay on top of your security, uh, you know, with, with, with break-ins and uh, theft. If you, get a, if you get a notoriety of your storage facility is break-in uh, prone, uh, it will devastate your business. I mean, people now do Google reviews. They take pictures on Facebook. Um, I've actually listed some of those type of facilities and it's like, how do you overcome? Because a buyer is going to do some recon on the storage facility. The first thing they look up is a Google review and they've got nine one stars because of break-ins or flooding or whatever it may be. I mean, that's over, that's hard to overcome. Yeah. And that's partly just because they were either cutting corners and didn't want to spend the money on the security piece um, or just mismanaged in operations. Um, also, you know, checks and balances on who you're renting to. I mean, a lot of folks don't don't do that. And now, again, if you're an unmanned facility and you're allowing folks to rent online, it's hard to do much of a background and see the person. So that that's the that's the bad side of that. Yeah. Um, the good side, it's easy. They come in real quick. But the bad side is you don't know who you're renting to. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of it is the expectations have been set that. You know, this epic period of self-storage from 2019 to 2022, you had this increase in rents just, you know, almost two times in themselves unheard of. I mean, the average rental rate increase is somewhere around 5% per annum. In some cases, you're seeing 100 to 200% rent increases wow. overnight. Um, and no amenities were provided. It's just, they just changed the rents. And the tenants were, there was no other options for them to go to. So they just were like, well, I guess this is, I'll stay here and keep my stuff here. Um, or, you know, obviously get them to move out. So I would say temper expectations as far as how fast you can raise rents and um, really do some recon on what's the unit mix. What's the demand for unit mix? If you're in a rural market, you certainly don't want a bunch of five by tens. If you're in an urban market, it's hard to rent anything that's bigger than a 10 by 25 because people just don't have that much stuff in their urban world to store. Uh, so you have to be conscious of what type of unit mix fits the area that you're, that you're buying in. And then amenities, 65%. I mean, there's a statistic out there. I don't know if it's exactly 65%, but I believe it's 65% of the rental decision and or renters are female. Mm. So, how do you garner that audience with your product? Well, the, you're going to want to have security, safety. You want good lighting, uh, cleanliness. You know, those factors factor into a decision that a person's going to make. And in some cases, most folks are willing to pay a little bit more per month for the amenities that those are there. If it's a dark, dimly lit gravel with mud and, uh, you know, a chain link fence that has holes in it and there's cobwebs everywhere. That's not as attractive as the shiny facility with asphalt security cameras well lit. And, and you put your stuff there, you feel like, hey, when I put this lock on this door, the next time I come back, it'll all be here. Yeah. I, th that's so good. And I, I think that a lot of folks, you know, need to hear that. In addition to that, though, I wonder as a buyer and as you've been a buyer, if those, the chain link, the dark lit, you know, 
if you're willing to put in a little bit of work, that could be the great opportunity to to really turn something around and, and increase rents and make it a great asset for you. 100%. And I, I have, you know, the term value add or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's, sometimes they're just, just the ugly dog. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try to talk to people and I, I'm very upfront with uh, buyers. You know, they'll ask me about an asset and I say, hey, this is a roll your sleeves deal. You want to get in here, you want to spend some weekends power washing doors, clean up the facility, get the weed whacker out and, you know, get after it. You're going to make some instant sweat equity here in the, in the project. And you're also going to, you know, make the customers that are already renting at the facility happy because it's going to look much better. Yeah. Um, those are ones where you can come in and garner some instant equity overnight. In some cases, I call the the pretty facility that has every bell and whistle. It looks great. It's dialed in. There's like, what else can I do here any different? Those are like annuities, right? So you're just buying yeah. something that's just going to plug along and continue to produce cash flow. It's not going to be super sexy. It's not going to be the the double overnight uh, in, in value, but it's going to continue to maintain its high occupancy. It'll It's a steady eddy. Um, so those are two different buyers, right? You've got one buyer who's like, I love the dog. I want to turn it into the greatest shiny project on the, on the thing. And then you got the other one. It's like, I always want to buy the prettiest thing out here and just let it do its thing. Sure. No, I think that's good. And trying to figure out what kind of buyer you want to be is huge. Uh, before we shift to the last part of the show here, one more question. And again, going on the other side, we've talked a lot about buyers but you oftentimes are representing sellers. You're building relationships with sellers. What is something aside? Of course, dollar amount matters, and it, and like you said, you know these folks are looking to retire and have an nest egg for them or their families, and maybe folks to come. What else matters the most to sellers? Uh, maybe something buyers should hear. Um, I mean. <laughs> Well, that's a tough question because every seller has a different motivation, right? So if I'm 78 years old, I'm tired and I want my money, that's a different motivation than I'm 35 years old, you know, not tired and just, you know, so that's a, t- that's a tougher question. I, I ask that question. I mean, what is your, what if there is an idea of selling, why would you sell? You know, you're leaving the best asset class out there to go to do what? In some cases, it's just, hey, I just want to get paid for what I built and move on, pay my taxes and go home. Um, and then in other cases, you have folks that are that are looking for um, ongoing cash flow. They're just like, I don't want to lose the cash flow I get every month from the storage facility. Well, that's the pivot is to say, well, you can sell, be the bank to the buyer. You'll have ongoing cash flow. You minimize your tax hit. And... Um, you know, you get to keep a piece of this coming in every month yeah. for, you know, however long you want to keep that coming in, whatever balloon time you, frame you want. Um, so those are some things that, that sellers are looking for. And then last is price expectations. And those have drastically changed in the last 12 months. Yeah. I mean, what was priced last year in some cases is nearly a million to $2 million less now. Wow. Um, just because it's just gone poof. And, and that's that's directly related to those cap rates and interest rates. And um, if you're buying a property at a five cap and interest rates are at seven and a half cap, and you're two and a half percentage points below water day one, that's negatively levered. That's probably not a great decision to be buying that. Yep. No, I think that's so good. And again, getting into the mind of sellers and understanding that the game's changed on them too, right? For buyers, rates have gone up. You know, uh, occupancies changing all the time, but also understanding for sellers the game changes and really trying to understand where they're at. I think that's huge. Well, this has been awesome. What I want to do here is just shift to our gold nugget round. It's the same four questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of every show. And uh, I'm going to hit them with you kind of rapid fire. So let me get to the first one here. We talk a lot at Abundant Journey about the five F's, and I'm going to have you pick one of these and tell me how you're focused on getting better in this area of life this year. So we got family, faith, finance, 
fitness, and future. So pick one of those and tell me how you're trying to grow this year. Wow. Uh, I'm going to go with fitness. Um, so in my, in my spare time, I, uh, I coach high school wrestling. So um, part of coaching wrestling is to, you know, obviously get in there and coach with the kids and continue to uh, grapple with them in practice. Um, I've set some goals for myself this year to maintain my fitness level so I can still wrestle with the, uh, the what, they, what they determine to be 16, 17, 18 year olds that they think they're Hercules. And additional, <laughs> I've, uh, you know, I, I signed myself up for a Spartan race. Uh, I did one in Montana this year. I signed myself up blindly for another one in Arizona in November. So it's made me focus on my fitness to continue to maintain that level, which uh, forces me to do that. Um, I don't think if I otherwise had those goals in place, I would maintain it. Yep. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's also good to have uh, goals to attain and, and dates that come up. And it's like, hey, if you're not ready, it's going to kick your butt today. And um, yep. I challenge anyone who's 50 years old to walk into a wrestling room with a bunch of high school kids and to go uh, three or four rounds with those boys and see how you feel. I've, uh, I've watched it happen and I've seen some grown men walk out of there uh, saying, I'm never coming back again. This is, this killed oh. me. Well, I, man, that, that's so good. One, there's nothing like putting something on the calendar to force you to really get after it. So I, I love that piece. And I've heard those Spartan races. Those are pretty awesome. But also now with the, with the wrestling, is that something you did when you were younger? Did you have boys that wrestled and you've just kept that going or what, what's make you want to give back that way to the high schoolers? Uh, so both. Uh, yeah. I wrestled when I was younger. I'm not collegiately, just high school. Uh, and then my, yeah. My middle boy uh, had an interest in wrestling at a younger age. And so as that kind of grew and then it was just couldn't have been like it was perfect timing. The uh, previous wrestling coach was retiring that the new coach was coming in and I had an incoming freshman. I just was, you know, gar meeting with him and he's like, hey, if you're ever interested, we'd love to have a volunteer. So it started as a volunteer position, which then blossomed into now you're coaching the freshmen. Oh, now you're coaching. So they'll definitely use you as much as they can. Sure. Um, it's a it's a commitment, but I love it because, you know, having um, a son involved in it, and now my youngest is going to be coming in as an incoming freshman. So uh, potentially another four years. I don't know. It, it, we'll see how, if he if he wants me to be there or not. But sure. um, I do I do like the opportunity. And I think it's a great sport. I mean, it's, a lot, I, it's one of those sports that, you take with you for life. The adversity oh. that you get from that sport, you can take and, and apply it to a lot of different things in the real world. Yeah. No, that's so good. Well, next question here. So what's a quote from a book or mentor that stuck with you along your journey? I, I think I said it earlier. Uh, it was find a niche and, uh, and, and kill it. I mean, that was what I, I mean, it was, it's been with me forever and I have, that I literally remember where I was sitting when he said that to me at that coffee shop in Seattle. So uh, it's yeah. been stuck in my head for a long time. I love that. And, and I love, you know, so many of our guests have shared similar, like there was a pivot moment, there was a pivot conversation, there was a light bulb thing and, you know, it stuck with me. So that, and that's an awesome one because I think <laughs> so many people get caught going left and right and shiny object syndrome. So to be able to, pick that and go with it. You know, now you can share 20 years down the road of having done that. Look at where it's landed you, which is incredible. Next one here. What's a dream or goal that you have that you've not been able to make happen yet? I haven't owned a lake place yet. <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds uh, superficial. Um, Honestly, I think one of my biggest uh, dreams and goals, and this this is, uh, you don't know my background, but I, uh, in college, I finished my college career in uh, China. I was a language translator in China. Um, and so it, Chinese is, a, is, is obviously a, a very global language now in the culture. Yeah. 
uh, one of my goals is to go back to China and one of my other goals is to pick up that language skill again. I was proficiently fluent in Chinese at one point in my life and it's a use it or lose it language for sure. sure. Um, and so I would I have a, a desire to bring that back into my brain and utilize that piece. I know what's in there somewhere to pull out. I just, you know, have to have a reason to use it. So a goal would be to, to bring that back into my life somehow. I love that. That's great. And that's a, that's a unique one to one of those questions we've heard. So what a, what a great skill to know and learn. And I think the necessity for stuff like that just continues to increase as the world keeps getting busier and busier. So, yeah. well, la last one here. So at the end of your life, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, I've, I, I hope that, uh, People will look at and say this individual was was willing to get back and provide uh, guidance to the individuals that he worked with that were friends and family and uh, you know somebody who was always looking out to with others. Uh, I felt like I've tried to live my life like that in a give back stance. Um, I've been afforded opportunities um, that some other folks were never given, and I felt like those allowed me to return the favor. Um, I know that I have a lot of good friends that I've created through business relationships that I otherwise wouldn't have. But, um, you know, I continually try to uh, get back, you know, I do the high school wrestling, I continue to do things that I feel that folks will look back and say, Hey, this person wasn't selfish, and they thought about helping others. I love the answer, and I think you're well on your way. And that, that the the fact that you and I got connected, even from somebody here locally in my market to where you are, speaks to the way that you live in that of giving and thinking of others and leaving, you know, the relationships in a better place than when they they got started. Leaving places better than that. So I love it. I love the answer. Well. Ryan, this has been awesome. Truly grateful that you would spend some time with us today and our listeners. And in speaking of that, what is the best way if folks, you know, are interested in your business or interested in, you know, maybe looking at being a, a buyer? What are some ways folks can get uh, get a hold of you? Uh, the easiest is our website, um, areanw.com. Uh, that has all the active listings that we have uh, for self-storage. It has my contact information. You can reach out through uh, basically clicking the link to an email or my phone number on there. But yeah, A-R-E-A-N-W.com. That's me. That's awesome. We'll be sure to add that to the notes of the show. So listeners, you be sure to reach out to Ryan. He's always great, both with experience and his kindness and generosity and with his time. So be sure to do that. And on that note, listeners, thank you for, as always, for jumping in with us today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Leave a review. Also share with your friends, especially those interested in storage. And we will catch you next time. Thank you all. Bye.